You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Hello and welcome. May the peace and blessings of God be upon you all. You have joined us on another episode of Saturday Morning Live. I am Usman Shazad Bhatt, and with me in the studio, you probably already heard him as soon as he turned on the mics, he's uh, making sure his phone was off, <laughs> Mudabbar Khalid and Shoaib. Zafar, I've not forgotten, it is Zafar Great We are uh, live with you today, it is your show, we want you to be involved um, We will be talking about two, we are, rather, we have two segments in the show The first segment is our news roundup Where we look at different things that took uh, place during the week that caught our eye That we will be discussing with you And then in the second hour, we will be talking about the Peace Symposium uh, Which is taking place next week uh, this is a well prior to COVID it used to be an annual event it used to take place every year this uh, is one of the flagship events as well it's a flagship event that's a good way to describe it where His Holiness addresses the world um, and we're gonna I think this year it remarks 20 years it's 20 years but it's the 17th anniversary so obviously there will be um, some uh, I think there may be may have been a few years where the peace symposium didn't take place. Oh yeah, so, because so, of COVID. Yeah, yeah so but it's the seventeenth um, peace symposium, but it is twenty years since the first one, yeah. which first so, one yeah, took place so in two thousand three. So yeah. we're in kind of build up to that peace symposium next week. We're going to be looking at different um, addresses made by His Holiness, uh, and just going to discuss it and see how. For the last 20 years, His Holiness has been preaching peace and justice uh, and the need for peace and justice and how even back then what he was saying is relevant today. So those are the different things we will be talking about. Um, but before we do, as I mentioned, it is a live and interactive show. It is your show. We want you to have your opinion and say. So you can call us at any time, 0208-687-7878. That's 0208-687-7878. Or you can get... Through to us on our socials or VOI, which is at Voice of Islam UK. So, how's it going, boys? How have you been? Um, what news has caught your eye? What are you putting at me? I thought my, <laughs> most. I thought you know. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to even say you know peace no. you uh, to 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 uh, to introduce myself to say oh, hello. Sorry, so uh, I thought oh, you you guys <laughs> no, might as well no, no, take no, no. take control of the no show. No chance. No <laughs> chance. Come on, you're a prominent <laughs> voice in this, in this radio. Bro. It's yeah. a live show, so we can't even edit it. So uh, <laughs> I'll just I'll take this opportunity to reintroduce you because I did thank introduce you. Thank you. Yeah. So yes. Shoaib Zafar, how thank are you? you very much. Yes, I'm very well. Thank you, Ranch, as well. Uh, nice. Uh, well, a bit bit cold outside. It is. But the chilly. sun's out. Yeah. The it's sun's chilly. coming out really as well. Cold. Yeah, it's chilly. I think it's the the temperature's dropping again, isn't it? Uh, right. Yeah, it got it got warmer. Uh, at one point, I was we've had two this cold snaps. Two like uh, one we've literally just gone past, or we've come to the end of it. But there was another one a few weeks ago where literally I think a few days before that it was really warm, and all of a sudden, like a few days later, it's back to like zero degrees. This is what's making me ill, man. I swear, it's, it's, it's not just down. making you; it's making everyone ill. I don't know if yeah. you know if you've. <laughs> tried to book a GP appointment or if you've gone to a supermarket try and get your over-the-counter medicine like, especially for kids it, it's difficult mm-hmm. to find these <clears throat> in stock yeah. and I, I got my car washed a few days ago thinking yeah that's it thank god there's no more salting the yeah. motorways because it, it makes the car so dirty and then yesterday they were salting the motorways again so yeah. but anyway uh, we preserve we go on we yeah, make it into the studio <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's nice to actually be in the studio as well because for a while we, it's not it wasn't we 
not a lot of us no, were. No, you've not in, come in for a while. Am I not coming? Yeah, okay, well, yeah, it's yeah, so it's nice to be in when everyone is in. Where we haven't got the yeah. COVID restrictions as well, mm. uh, which is nice. So it's nice to ha- see you beautiful faces again. Oh, thank you, making <laughs> us blush on it. <laughs> but anyway, so what news stories are we covering today? Mo, you wanted to? Are you cool, covering? yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Um, well, I didn't read the article completely. The only reason why I wanted to bring it up was because it was being discussed quite um, heavily on LBC on my way in. Um, and the headline is Swimmers Ruined by Culture of Fat Shaming and Bullying. So then ultimately what the whole topic was about. Um, you know, Andrew Castle, the tennis player, is a presenter as well. Um, ex-tennis player, my, my, my bad. Um, so he was talking about how athletes get pushed how hard they get pushed, whether that's right or not, and now whether that should be classed as bullying. So now, obviously, this article's come out where the swimmer, she's a GB, um, Great Britain former Commonwealth youth gold medalist, and uh, she was talking about how uh, when she was training, her coaches used to fat shame her. They used to put chocolates out in front of them and say, oh, if you try this, then you'll be, if you have any of this chocolate, you've, you've completely failed. And they're like basically bullying is what they, they And consider. the parents were there witnessing this? Parents weren't, I don't know if parents were there. Parents weren't knew by it after. But basically with this particular um, yes. woman, her name is Phoebe Lenderyu. She um, had bulimia while she was competing. I don't know. If, do either, either of you no. know what bulimia is? Yes, no, I don't know. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sickness disease, right? It's, it's, it's an eating disorder. That's so bulimia right. is an eating disorder, and it's a, it's a mental health disorder, and it comes about when um, it's very prevalent in young girls more than it is in young boys. Very prevalent in young girls. I've, I had to deal with it as well in, in, when I was working in hospitals. Basically, they have a, a, a distorted view of the body, mm. a very distorted view of the body. And it comes about mainly after um, bullying or um, fat shaming. And <coughs> basically what happens is they have this distorted view that they are big or they're not the size that they actually are. And then what they end up doing is they, whenever they eat food, they'll um, cause themselves yeah, to, themself to, uh, to throw up. That's different to anorexia. Anorexia is just completely not eating. Bulimia is forcefully getting your food out after you've eaten. So when I was working in the hospital, every time there was a uh, a patient or a child that was at risk of that, when they had eaten food, we'd have to follow them to go to see where they would go because most of the time they would go back to, the, to their bedroom, lock themselves in and try to throw up. So this obviously causes you to uh, lose weight. Doesn't uh, not lose weight, but you don't put on the same weight. You can lose weight as well, but it's very dangerous as well because when you throw up, the mm. acid is not good. Basically, and the the more you do it, right. it can it can rot your teeth. It's bad for your mouth. It's generally just not good for your well being. So basically, this girl, it's not this girl, this woman, Phoebe. Apologies. She um is talking about how she struggled so much through her training and her coaching. And how she was pushed so hard. And it wasn't just her. It was her colleagues as well. And her teammates. Um, and she felt she had to, uh, yeah, um, forcefully throw her, throw up so that she can stay in shape and, and not mm-hmm. feel that she was fat. And what I thought from that was, where do you draw the line between um, bullying and actually being pushed and being taught discipline? Because Andrew um, Castle was saying... Uh, when he was training in Florida as a tennis player, he was pushed as well. He was pushed at times to run to exhaustion. Where if if um, he goes, one example was him and his uh, teammates were in a room 
and one morning his coach his coach came in and they found uh, a beer cap a beer bottle cap uh, in the room and the coach made all of them run to exhaustion literally to exhaustion where they like their legs couldn't move and he was saying now that would be classed as bullying but in his day it was discipline you made a mistake mm. you're not meant to be drinking and this is the punishment it's mm. interesting actually because i've been similar to the story i've been following other stories where i don't know you guys have probably seen it as well where they're changing like child books yeah, language yeah, yeah, that's yeah, been yeah, used in yeah, children yeah, yeah, books yeah, yeah. especially Roald Dahl's books yes Philip and, Pullman uh, was someone that yeah but so that's very interesting as well um and i think obviously over time it has been i mean the publishers from what i've heard have changed it so that it doesn't face too much scrutiny in in the media but even now for example it's like it's words like saying fat and certain other words are now considered that you know we can't use these words so it's 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 weird because it's um <coughs> and the thing for me is that that doesn't make sense because fat is actually it's a technical term it's a sign like if you're really big and you're overweight you have to be told you're overweight you're fat yeah. you have to because yeah, you can I'm, say it how you just mentioned it now you don't have to say fat but fat okay, is a fat is a uh, descriptive. It's, no, 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 no. It's an actual definition of of, of something. Um, uh, what's the word? Fat is actually like how Large. you have how you have no no how you oh. have muscle in your body. How you have fat. So we, we yeah. know. Oh yeah, it's, know, it's a scientific term. It's a scientific term, yeah. right? To determine like the what's the level of fat in the food. But I think uh, describing it to call someone that is a. Um, I don't think so. It's 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 it should be said in that way. I, I, I do agree because that's mm. more of a. Derogatory. Yes, yeah, right? it, it is a bit of a more of an informal way. Whereas, and then, and then, I think in books, movies, and TV shows, it's said in the way of causing a bit of laughter on the on the person's yeah. expense. It's, mm. it's, you say you use it more in a comedic <clears throat> uh, way. So you know, you'd say, "Oh, the the you know in, in character in children mm. character books, it's like you'd say, oh, the fat person' or this that,' and it's mm. just as a to make them laugh or something." But actually, I noticed this, that even in movies, mm. for quite some time, TV shows and movies that I've been watching, you don't hear that. Mm. And then I, I watched a movie where I heard it being used, and it was a very old movie. Mm. And I just and, and I just stopped and think, I was like, oh my God, yeah, they don't, they don't say this no more because thing of this whole... It's political I think, correctness. No, I'll tell you what it is. It's, mm. And this is something you two have no experience of because you guys are in very good shape. I've just stopped you because for no. Mo, not for myself. <laughs> for I agree there. <laughs> for Mo. No, yeah, but even Mo, okay. If someone didn't, so if we know Mo, that's why we say that, okay, he was a lot of yeah. yeah. But mm. if someone didn't know him, you would never look at him no. and think, well, he's overweight. You wouldn't say this now. I can uh, relate to this because I am overweight. Yeah. Like, I, And I was previously a lot bigger and still overweight. And these are the words that I've been called as well. So it's you're right. It's when you're called these words, you're not like thinking, "Oh, it's okay." Technically, what he's saying is right. Like no one thinks like that. <laughs> Who thinks like that? If someone's calling me that, and in, and it also depends on the occasion where he's calling me. Yeah. If it's like one to one, someone's trying to inspire me to lose weight. That's different. But if it's like in a group where you're being made kind of the laughing part of the joke, yeah, the part of the joke, then it's like. Regardless what words, doesn't matter what words you use, like yeah. you can use this word or another word that have the same meanings. Yeah. It's the effect of kind of being shamed in public. So yeah. it, it's difficult, I understand. But, but I, I think the only thing with this is it'll be really interesting to see if someone's done a study to like when you're pushed to that limit mm. like, in the way that these athletes are. What is the rate of success? But this is the thing. This is honestly the thing. This is literally what I was going to bring up as well. Mm. And I was thinking about it on the way here. It's like, okay, but 
is so say so this woman she's um former gold medalist and uh now her success she's very successful right olympian gold medal mm. for uk does that outweigh the would bullying she that she had got through? there would she have got there without that exactly this is my take on it is that if you look at the lives of superstars yeah in any field like messi like Mo Salah is a really good example as well. Any any sort of these superstars, the difference between them and those who are put into a system to try and become a superstar is that when you come from a certain area where you know you have no future and you know that potentially your family's, you're the only way out for your family. Yeah, you go Then you put everything. yourself through those. Yeah, like for example, Mo Salah used to run how many miles to get to training and then he would run back. <coughs> There's so many other examples. Messi, there were certain examples that he used to do as well. Ronaldo, Ronaldo as well. that he puts himself through. Yeah. So it's like... Struggle is something that's common in success. Like you got to struggle, and yeah, not only that, but you know but how it's, it, was, it depends on. And so, for example, who's pushing I see you this to do it? Like where sometimes when your parents push you into a certain field, mm. you have to do this. Then that struggle is almost your heart's not in it. So then these things you feel more that yeah, you so know <laughs> I need to get up in the morning to run. I need to do this. Yeah. I need to do that. But again, it's um, you're right. I, I think times have changed, man. Previously. Uh, before the world of social media, before the world of entertainment, this was you're right. It would have been normal. Discipline. But it, it, just from what you were talking about um, with um, the struggles and everything, uh, what was being mentioned on and LBC, Andrew Castle was saying was that sometimes what happens is um, parents push their failures or their fear of failure onto that child. Mm-hmm. So even when the child is then saying, "Look, I don't want to do it anymore," the parents get frustrated and say, "No, you have to. You have to," which is not good. Um, so yeah, I was going to add into that. What I just wanted to say was actually, um, I'm surprised you mentioned swimming because there was something about this in gymnastics as well, mm. um, where young girls were having to go through this to go through certain, certain mm. mental health like this as well. Um, so it's not just in, it's not isolated to one sport. I think just because of how competitive any sport is now, like I was speaking to someone about how much you, can you imagine how much you need to invest if you want your child to become a tennis player? Yeah. The, yeah, the financial yeah, burden and still, yeah, the chances are so slim that you can go mm. to the top, top tennis academies and pay millions and millions of pounds a year but you, if you don't put in that work and, you know, yeah. you can, you, you can't, you might not get to that level. It's yeah. so it's rare. So interesting I think because that's good. That, sorry, that, that sport is seen as some like elite sport whereas realistically, what golf, do you need? You need a tennis racket and a ball. But just, it's, it's just the competitiveness. Easy, Obviously, like it's, it's not that like easy. But I'm part, like, all you need is a no, 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 no. I'm talking about equipment-wise, facilities-wise. What do you really need? It's yeah. just to to get to that it, top one percent, yeah. though. You Have know, you the King Rafa Nadal's. No, no I've, I've not seen, seen that yet. That. But, amazing. But look, to get Absolutely to that level. But did you sense this when you watched that though? Like, does this make sense in terms of did he push his? I've not seen. Yeah, that. Yeah, he pushed his kids. He pushed his kids hard, but his kids were also on it. They 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 weren't. It's not like they they were being pushed unwinningly or they didn't really want to do it. No, it's interesting. This is a very interesting topic um, because I'm sure you will find uh, views of people who have gone through it and realise that they would not make it without that discipline. Yeah, 100%. But then you'll also find stories like this where they do afterwards when they evaluate that actually we feel that that was too much. So yeah, it'll be very interesting to see. It's a very interesting news story. What's our next um, you know, on that year, I just wanted to quickly add one point. You know, this, the, uh, the Islamic perspective, or not the Islamic, what well, the Islamic perspective, but also what um, Hazrat Masimod said. Uh, uh, yeah, the Promised Messiah. Um, in regards to one of the conditions of of birth is to bear hardship, 
and um, I, I believe we're told to bear that hardship because we'll see the fruit of our labor in the end, and we'll see the successes of that. Yeah, so. but I think from a religious point, it's um, so like we live in a society where, yeah, we're Muslims, but not everyone around us is Muslims. Yeah. So technically, what's right and wrong for us isn't what's right and wrong for others. Yeah. So we can't like we're being a Muslim is not like a, it's not a switch. We don't just turn it on when we come to the mosque. Yeah, it's part of our identity. Yeah, so to bear hardships for me, especially in this society, is that regardless of what society or social media, whatever happens in and around you, you have to stay firm in your your kind of resolve and uh, effort in making sure that we fulfill our purpose in life in every aspect of life. Yeah. So it's not like we're not just going to say, yeah, we'll just like be a good Muslim when we're in the mosque. But mm-hmm. actually when I'm at work, when I'm traveling, when I'm at school, mm-hmm. when different challenges present themselves before me, even if the right thing to do is is to bear Read that hardship, out if you want. Um, you can scroll up. Then, mm-hmm. then we have to do that. So what you're, the condition you're talking about is the fifth condition. So this is the 10 conditions uh, of initiation. Um, again, these aren't any new, there's nothing new to Islam, rather this, this, all of this stuff as the Messiah came it was to revive Islam uh, and it's just a reminder and the condition is that he or she shall remain faithful to God in all circumstances of life in sorrow and happiness adversity and prosperity in felicity and trial and shall in all conditions remain resigned to the decree of Allah and keep himself or herself ready to face all kinds of indignities and sufferings in his way and shall never turn away from it at the onslaught of any misfortune on the contrary, he or she shall march forward. And the best people who are examples of this are prophets. Yeah. Like it's not like <coughs> I understand if prophets had it easy and we're suffering, yeah. then I people can say, look, what's going on here? Yeah. Why do we have to suffer? But prophets suffered more than anyone. Yeah. Uh, and it's unreal how much they suffered. But because they were <coughs> so um, content with the signs that God gave them and their, their relationship with God, was a living relationship, then they knew that nothing in this world can harm us. Yeah. So you know, I want to say, Isman, so you said that, you know, it's applicable to us because we're Muslims, but, you know, we know Islam is a religion for all ages and it's a religion for everyone. I think that that is a very crucial point we've mentioned, that condition itself, because it, it shows you, so any hardship you put through in life, right, nothing, you will not enjoy anything that comes easy yeah. because... You know, anything that comes easy isn't you don't worth value it. Isn't it. worth it exactly. Yeah, you don't value so I think it, that applies to every language, every culture, every culture everyone. Because when you put in the work for what you want to achieve, and you, when you achieve it through the hard work, that is when you enjoy the fruits of that yeah, labor. 100%. It's a Otherwise, universal feeling. Exactly. Universal. So you know, these, these uh, you know, when I when I listen to uh, those, you know, the His Holiness the Friday sermons or or you know the speeches, and I, I listen to it, and I think. This is not just for oh, us. For just li- if if people if we take out this, you know this, peop- this view we have. Oh, this is it's Muslims and it's just for them. No, this is so applicable for the rest of the world. Mm. Like listening to this doesn't mean you're going to become a Muslim. Mm. Listening to someone say something beneficial or something good for you mm. to how you you know morals the morals you should have in your life. It's it's not it's not going to harm you. Mm. It's beneficial for you. Yeah. So it's just yeah, we're gonna. So in our second hour of the show, we are gonna. Um, talk about three different addresses of His Holiness with regards to peace uh, and kind of global justice and which will discuss this very point how that these these addresses they're almost universal and th- and how something that His Holiness mentioned 10 years ago is so applicable even now because the need is still there um, exactly. so that's something we'll get onto in the second hour of the show what is our next news segment? 
Yeah, oh, um, I was going to mention, so uh, I don't know if you, um, I'm sure you've heard, we've all heard the name uh, Shemima Begum. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I think it's notorious, at least across Britain. But um, So uh, I was actually watching her documentary on BBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she was interviewed by a journalist um, going into her life in a lot of detail of how, you know, you know, for, for a bit of context for those who don't know, I think she was 15 years old when she uh, left uh, East London and she flew to Turkey, crossed into Syria and then joined ISIS uh, by mm. following a friend. And since then, uh, since the fall of ISIS in Syria, she, uh, the Home Office, Sajid Javid, uh, revoked her British citizenship, effectively leaving her stateless. <coughs> so imagine that, tearing I, up your passport. I'll, I'll be honest, I find that wild. I find that so wild. No, no passport, right? And she's now stranded with no one. No one will accept her. So they, mm. so she is stuck in a Kurdish camp right now, uh, a Kurdish-controlled camp. And so imagine they cannot ship her out anywhere because no one would let her on a flight to go anywhere because no country will accept her. So she's been stuck there, and now uh, she <clears> lost <throat> her latest appeal uh, against the removal of her Britain British citizenship. And. Gomo, let's hear. So, and so I'll, hold on, and let me I'll, ask you a question. So, you, you watched that um, documentary. documentary. How, what kind of effect did that have on you? In, in your, did it change your views, or did you have a certain view before? And I, I did have a certain view before, and uh, I still hold that view now. But what is actually like what I was really impressed by was, I think, you know, for someone for her interview. If you listen to it, she doesn't seem someone who's stupid. She's not. She's. I think she answers questions very well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this, there did seem to be quite a degree of sincerity. I don't know if she's been coached or or what, but you know she's in a she's in a, a camp. I don't know if she's she's got much exposure to be given training on how to answer interviews and, and things like this. Um, but you definitely when you if you rely on the media to just you know give you snippets of what she said, you mm-hmm. will hold a very different view. Whereas if you listen to a story, it's it's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mo, I. I my my takeaway from this was that look, you know, she's done this. Um, what a lot of people's arguments is, we're not forgiving her. But look, we the British people are the Britain is responsible for her. She was groomed here, and she went to Syria to fight. She should be held accountable um, in in this in this land uh, for for her actions. Right, and be punished here. Um, and my I guess idea is that she doesn't have that because she ne- I think I think people over here just never ever would ever accept that she ever was British we call her British because she's one about people don't think she is British and I wonder if if it was if this was a white girl I was literally going to say this would it? she would people has views have been oh she's you know she was one of us she was a Briton she's been uh, groomed, she's been brainwashed, and then she's been taken, and we need to bring her back here and mm. help her. It's mm. interesting. interesting. No, uh, so there was an interview, or there was a discussion, or podcast, or something between some presenters. I don't know if this is where you got that clip from, but literally one of the presenters, um, who's a Caucasian gentleman, he was saying the same thing. He was like, uh, "If this was Sharon from Manchester, was the example he gave. If this was Sharon from Manchester, there's no chance." That the government would revoke her passport, they would understand that she's British. She made a mistake. She was young. She was groomed, and we should be giving her a second chance. Especially as a Christian country, I'm saying unquote unquote Christian country, even though Christianity in this country now is the uh, is not second. the uh, predominant um, religion. But 
as a Christian country, where where's the forgiveness? Where where's the where's the um, where's the chance for redemption? <coughs> so yeah, that's what that's what um, till now upsets me, or not upsets me, but it shocks me that it wouldn't be the same treatment for me or you for or for anyone I believe of color. It wouldn't be the same treatment at all. No. It wouldn't be the same treatment. And that is literally what this presenter, who is, again, a Caucasian gentleman, was saying. He goes, Mm -hmm. it's a reminder for those people that um, are not white, that they are not treated the same, uh, which I think is very unfair, which is um, not the right way to... to, uh, Because what lesson is it teaching to to young children that I can't be forgiven for any mistake I made or I can't be treated fairly? She was young. She was brainwashed. She should be brought back to her family and uh, Trump be be given fair trial. I mean, uh, uh, just on the, on the on the other side of that, if you hear some of her early interviews, um, and like for example, when she was asked about the Manchester Arena attacks, mm. and she just showed absolutely no remorse, and mm. almost said, "Yeah, but it's a tip." It was almost like her response was, "It's a tip for that." Mm. You know, we our women and children are killed here, so that's what you get for doing Again, that. That's what I think for and, me, I was, she was not, of grooming. And what was insane? So she was she she was pregnant five times. She lost wow. all of her children. Wow. I didn't know that. I thought she'd only lost. I thought she only had one child, and she lost one mm. child. And when she spoke of the stories, it's actually really, mm. really heart wrenching when you hear the story of how all of her children passed away. Um, it's actually horrible, um, and and these children are always innocent. That's the yeah. most horrible thing in this is that children are always innocent yeah. in, in these things. Um, but you know, she the the the, the lawyers are going to continue fighting. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those topics. Um, it has different people have different views and you're right it's until something doesn't happen where you can compare it you will never know um so yeah like, like i said this, again it's one of those topics let's see i guess time with this time will serve as the exactly, best yeah. way to see actually what happens uh, my second story so i know recently we, we've approached the <coughs> one year mark of um russia's um invasion into ukraine uh and quite a shocking story was uh Putin, who's um, well, Russia has uh, has has put out that it will suspend its nuclear arms treaty uh, with the US. Um, so, just a bit of context. So, according to the um, United States uh, uh, United United States Department of State, uh, so the treaty between the United States of America and the Russian Federation on measures for further reduction and limitation of strategic offensive arms also known as the New START Treaty, enhances U.S. national security by placing verifiable limits on all Russian-deployed intercontinental-range nuclear weapons. Uh, The United States and the Russian Federation have agreed to extend the treaty through February 4, 2026. So this is when Biden came into office. They extended it by uh, four years again, which is a positive step. Uh, You know, His Holiness, um, the leader of the um, the Muslim community, has mentioned this council... Many times about nuclear uh, a nuclear arms race, uh, so it was very nice. You know, it's good to have this, but now the fact that Russia has paused this is it a cause for concern? Are they going to go back and start increase? I mean, for, for I mean, I think I saw a, somewhere a snippet on somewhere that, that they've got in, they've got the most nuclear warheads and they've got enough to destroy the world. I think it's something like three hundred times over. Mm. So why would you? I don't understand. Why would you need to still? Why would you? I think it's continue? just a show of strength, though, isn't it? It's still a show of strength or a show of force that I've got. Look at me, my my army's bigger. My my uh, armory is bigger. My arsenal is bigger. It's all. I think. <coughs> I, I don't know, man. Do you I think, guys? Do you think this is a, a an actual um, a 
it's just it's just just a threat because he's just paused the treaty they've not completely um, uh, torn it up i don't know i don't i i i think i don't know if we can like tread lightly and say oh he's just he's just threatening you know, we, i don't think, i don't think we can say it's that true. because it, if you look at how ukraine also is um getting arm uh, armory and arsenal from germany the first tank german tank have g- uh, gone over to ukraine now mm-hmm. we've pledged millions millions hundreds of millions to um to ukraine other european countries like literally zelensky went around europe saying give me money give me money give me arsenal which i find mm-hmm. crazy you're just it's, roping other countries yeah. into uh, uh, so war. this is the one thing i wanted to mention that is interesting that I would have thought it would have been the other way around. <coughs> Let's find peace. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Like, help me find peace. And this is but what his owners has mentioned as well, that the neighbouring countries it, yeah. should be... It's, it's interesting because, look, like you said, it's a year on from when it started. Um, and this is one particular point that they saw yesterday on the Drive Time show. Brother Raza and Guyum, they discussed this. And they actually interviewed a journalist. And I want to play that interview because it's really interesting because it looks at this whole war in Ukraine and Russia from a different point of view. So this is a interview they conducted with uh, Michael Tracy who serves as a journalist and we're just going to listen to that. For today, Michael Tracy who's a journalist is with us on the line from the United States. Michael, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, so, what are your thoughts on the speeches this week from, from both sides maybe? Well, I think there were re- reinforcements of a long-standing dynamic where both sides and not necessarily to equate both sides in any kind of moral or strategic sense but both sides are willfully raising at least what they claim are the stakes of the conflict i think putin himself said that the conflict is existential for russia itself Hmm. meaning that russia's war in ukraine bears directly on Russia's continued existence as a state, and it needs to prevail in order to preserve its own, again, continued existence. And Biden, likewise, in going to Kiev himself, affirms some of these maximalist ideological commitments to the war that he's espoused now for the entirety of the conflict, but which he's continuing to maintain the fervor of in declaring and w- whether you disagree or agree with this prognosis, I don't have much reason to doubt that it's a sincerity, it's a sincere reflection of Biden's actual beliefs, for better or worse. Hmm. But he more or less has proclaimed that the conflict is this cosmic struggle between more or less good and evil. And at the very least, as he puts it, it's the focal point for the to the preservation of democracy, meaning democracy itself is at stake in Ukraine. Um, so these are irreconcilably maximalist beliefs as to what the meaning of the conflict is, right? Hmm. And I think that goes at least part of the way in explaining why there's no movement whatsoever that we can see anyway in the public record towards some sort of conciliatory or diplomatic approach to resolving the conflict. Rather, it seems to be trending in the opposite direction where, um, you know, total victory of some sort seems to be what people are at least proffering as their only um, acceptable outcome for either side. 
Michael, you're a roving journalist. You've, you're, you're, um, yeah. I, I follow you on Twitter and, and I see, um, you, you making waves in, a, <laughs> in, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of your colleagues, uh, um, um, you know, um, not on the, on the positive side. One thing you mentioned just yeah. now, <laughs> one thing you mentioned about Biden genuinely thinking this is about good and evil, yet, over a, over the past couple of years, it was the West who were um, uh, who were reporting about Ukraine being fertile ground for far right nationalism um, because they were surrounded by there was Poland there there was Viktor Orban in Hungary there was uh, um, a lot of people with that ideology of far right extremism were kind of um, being trained or or reportedly being trained and you know mainstream newspapers were covering those so what's happened in the past year or two years that the the journalistic fraternity has kind of forgotten that they were the ones who were reporting the total opposite of what they're saying now yeah you know it's amazing how seamlessly that narrative was turned on its head and nobody even seemed to pause and notice or at least sort of attempt to suss out how it is that such um, such a swift and decisive narrative switch could be executed and everybody just kind of assumes that that's the law of nature or something it wasn't even it wasn't even the media so much that shifted well I should rephrase yes you're right that the purported prevalence of this far-right sentiment in Ukraine was widely reported on the media. But even look at the U.S. Congress. There was a letter that was organized in 2018 by Ro Khanna, the Democratic congressman from California, who then co-chaired the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, where he was complaining about, and I think about 40 of his Democratic colleagues signed on to this letter. It was addressed to the State Department. He was complaining that the Ukraine government was engaged in state-sanctioned Nazi, quote, glorification. That was his words. Hmm. And this was a concern that was being emphasized by the more progressive, quote-unquote, element of the Democratic Caucus vis-a-vis Ukraine, because the idea was to exert greater oversight over to whom U.S. resources were being dispatched in Ukraine. And the idea was they didn't want to embolden or, or bolster or provide uh, material support to any sort of fascistic or Nazi-aligned uh, element in Ukraine, and you know that was that's in the record. And then they all of a sudden turned on a dime and insisted that any reference to any of this was simple propagation of Russian disinformation, right, or an, an attempt to aid Russia's justification for its. Uh, war effort. So really what happened was the prerogatives of accurately reflecting the truth or conveying reality got subordinated to the prerogative of opposing Russia and supporting Ukraine, which even if you think it's justified to support Ukraine or oppose Russia, it's ultimately a propagandistic purpose, right? Because you're either supporting or opposing the war aims of a particular warring party. Um, in, a, in an active conflict, and so that—that's—that's that's, I think the kind of uh, 
essential explanation for, for what happened there, the, the, the way that these you know, imperatives got, uh, got flipped and guided you, the analysis. You, you've, been, you, you've been appearing on different uh, channels around the world um, in, in uh, you know, Middle East and uh, Israel and in America, even Fox News. With yeah. with uh, you know, everyone giving a different narrative, um, everyone talking about Putin. Nobody is willing to talk about what should Putin do if NATO build uh, or stock their arsenal in Poland. Nobody talks about. Nobody is even willing to go, um, uh, go down that route that. If they were in Putin's shoes, would they allow, um, you know, such weaponry to be on your borders? What? Why is that? N- nobody's willing to talk about NATO's responsibility. Right. right. Well, because they think that, meaning U.S. slash Western media, tend to think that that's an attempt to propagandistically deflect uh, the assignment of blame from where it should be rightly assigned, which is Putin. And they think that any uh, self-scrutiny or, or introspection as to the potential culpability of the um, U.S. or NATO or what have you, that's all, again, in service of supporting the propaganda objectives of, of Putin and therefore intolerable. You know, it's funny, you're right, I have been on a wide variety of media over the I'm glad I reminded you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and it's funny because like, uh, I've been on Indian media, I had right. a, a Chinese inquiry and stuff, yeah. and on those forums, there is more interest in the main in discussing like the policy response of the U.S. data from a kind of skeptical or at least just a journalistic perspective, then there would be anything close to like an appetite for within the U.S. media because in the U.S. media it's you know all Putin all the time and always about kind of fervent denunciation as though that's the be all end all of how one can make an assessment of the conflict. Right? It's kind of almost childish, and that's the only sort of they're like a one trick pony, and that that that's the only sort of uh, way that they know to approach the issue, just denouncing over and over again as though that makes any difference. Well, the, the, um, reason, the reason I asked about the, the, the international presence of, of you being on media is because the West keep on, or the Western media keeps on talking about how the world is against Putin. Mm. That's not the right. case, is it? I mean, it's only the Western developed world, because Africa, Asia, South America, um, they, they're they're either for or neutral to Putin, right? So, so, so this right. this, even, this 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 narrative of the world is against uh, uh, Putin is is incorrect, is it not? Right, and even countries that are ostensibly within the direct orbit of like the Western security order, and I hate using that term or terms like it because they're so cliched and annoying, but I'm just saying it for simplicity's sake. Even countries that are supposed to be within like that direct orbit of, in particular, the United States, have not aligned with the United States um, policy or acceded to its demands in terms of how they should respond to the Ukraine situation. And that includes even you know Israel, Saudi Arabia, um, Hungary, which is a NATO member, uh, member state, Turkey, another NATO member state, not just any NATO member state, 
but the state with the second largest military within NATO, yep. um, a, a fairly drastically different position uh, it takes than the United States. Um, so, yeah, on, you have those, you know, UAE, um, Qatar, et cetera, uh, similar story. Uh, so those, those, then those states are space, basically supposed to be um, aligned with the general strategic interest of the United States, or at least that's what we're generally told. Um, so, yeah, you have that, but then you also have the countries with the, that comprise the lion's share of the world's population. I mean, it's funny, uh, Biden goes to Kiev this week, makes all these grandiose proclamations about how freedom as we know it hinges on the ability of Ukraine to achieve a military victory in the Donbass and in like Zaporizhia, right? Uh, and, you know, again, this is all in the name of this noble attempt to ensure that future generations could enjoy the fruits of democracy. And it turns out that the position of the world's largest democracy or the country that's like reputed to be the world's largest democracy, India, hasn't changed at all. I mean, even just yesterday, they continued to abstain and the uh, UN vote on um, condemning Russia and calling for an immediate withdrawal by Russia from, from Ukraine. So, yeah, the, 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 the highfalutin rhetoric um, maybe sounds self-flattering to a lot of the people who engage in it, but it doesn't actually accord with um, the reality of, of, of actual international, international public opinion, at least as far as we can best um, ascertain. Finally, Michael, um, I don't want our listener to think we're talking pro-Russia, pro-Ukraine. One of the reasons we're discussing today this, this conflict is no one seems to be looking at middle ground. No one seems to be thinking, well, okay, Russia did wrongfully, for whatever reason, wage war on Ukraine. Instead of, you know, the, the, as Bryce Green said, you know, the, you know, where's the elders? Where's the grown-ups? As grown-ups, somebody would say, okay, find middle ground. There needs to be peace. There needs to be middle ground here. We cannot be escalating this. That seems to be missing completely from this conflict. There's no middle ground. You're either with us or you're against us. Where do you think, are we, where, where are we heading? Are we heading through dangerous times or is this just rhetoric? Well, I think a key feature of how the public discourse around this conflict has, um, has presented itself is that there's this constant expectation or this constant requirement imposed that to talk about the war, one must always be in this mode of uh, moralizing, meaning that if you're not always denouncing Russia and valorizing Ukraine, then you're under suspicion. And so most of the time, people hew to that line. Because uh, you don't want to uh, risk professional consequences or social consequences of appearing to be uh, sympathetic to Russia. And those consequences are actually real for uh, a lot of people, depending on what their kind of station in life is. So they hedge um, pretty significantly in what they're willing to say. Um, and, and, and that's really a... That's, that's such a sad state of affairs. To have imposed on, and that's, it's so distorting because in order to rationally analyze uh, an event as multifaceted and fraught and um, grave in, in terms of its potential 
um, uh, danger that it poses. You, you have to kind of step back from that hyper-moralizing frame of reference and actually try to do a bit more of a detached, dispassionate evaluation every now and then. And, but that's you know forbidden for the most part within sort of mainstream circles. Mm. Um, and so you don't really have it ever explained in public venues or in public forums in the United States that what the U.S. policy has been geared intractably toward uh, since the war started was incremental escalation of the warfare. I mean, that was the point in why the U.S. has sent higher and higher grade weaponry every couple of weeks or months. Um, the, the intent of that policy was so that Ukraine would be able to wage more intense and effective warfare and even expand the... Um, uh, expand the domain of the war fighting. Hmm. So, but, but that's not really c- clearly communicated to most audiences. So they think that the only culpable party in any kind of ex- uh, escalation is Russia because Russia is bad. And that the o- only the bad actor could be responsible for escalating, hmm. which is just not true in just a, just a very sort of baseline, almost uh, banal sense in that, you know, it takes two to tango for an escalatory spiral to be carried out, right? So if it, there's a tit-for-tat escalation, um, which there has been with like the U.S. and the, uh, Russia kind of uh, countering one another and acting in accordance with what what what, what each other does, um, that that's the that's the fundamental dynamic at play here. And so there's no critical scrutiny placed on to what extent the United States has contributed to this situation that we find ourselves in now, where at least if you listen to what the public allegations are, they're now saying, more or less, that China is plotting to enter the war, more or less, as a co-belligerent alongside Russia, mm-hmm. which is what, like an astounding development, potentially, if you want to stipulate that it's true, because it would broaden the contours of the war into so- something resembling a bonafide world war. And if that's now the point we, you've, we've reached, um, then that's Nothing, if not an, excla- uh, an escalation, but people don't. People uh, haven't been communicated with the details and the, the knowledge required to understand how that escalatory spiral actually progressed into what what uh, role the the United States in particular played in in accelerating it, which I think is dangerous. And so, we just, when you ask where does this lead to or what's going to happen. Um, I've learned uh, that it's a folly um, to make firm predictions about something as sort of inherently unpredictable and chaotic as war, mm-hmm. um, which is a phenomenon unlike any other in that regard. So I wouldn't make any firm predictions because, you know, who knows? It's, it's impossible to say. All I can really do is look at what the facts show now and what can be empirically ascertained now and what can what the the facts and empirical data show is a logic of escalation embedded in the policy of the united states and also seemingly of russia um at least of to some degree that has led to what these mutually irreconcilable warring parties going uh, drifting further and further away from any sort of mutually agreeable settlement. And China put out what it has called some sort of peace 
proposal or at least statement of the position on Ukraine. And it's uh, consistent with what China's been advocating this entire time. And this has never even given an airing in at least the US. I was going to say that. I was going to say that that China's, uh, uh, you know, uh, intervention has kind of been ignored, which is uh, which is uh, uh, which is sad and bizarre considering um, the role um, China um, can play in ending and this uh, this this conflict um, michael um we're we're coming up to to the hour i just want to thank you for taking time out and coming on to uh, the drive time show on voice of islam so that was michael tracy uh, and the interview that brother Guillaume and uh, brother raza did uh, they covered this topic yesterday as well but it's very interesting topic obviously this is a news topic that's on everyone's kind of agenda uh, it's been a year on since the war has started and uh, they did another very interesting interview as well with Bryce Green he's also a journalist but we don't have time to play that today but you if you missed out on it you can go on SoundCloud and listen to the drive time show that they did live yesterday but what's your thoughts on I think it's uh, it, it's so important because <coughs> I think it highlights the fact that with anything in life I think any any whether we're talking about Shemaima Begum, whether we're talking about Ukraine-Russian war, whatever we speak about, I think it's you need to understand the the issues in in their entirety. I don't yeah. think you can just pick up on one side and think, oh yeah, this is what's going on because no, mm. and um, it's just applicable to everything in life. Is before you make a decision on anything or approach something, understand it fully. Yeah, yeah. I, I think one thing that um, the pres- the uh, journalist was mentioning um, about. Well, it was probed by Raza saying uh, it seems that most journalists have flipped in their view because at the beginning they were saying how um, Russia is uh, the aggressor and uh, they're bad and all this. And a lot of journalists then actually had turned, um, you know, a a year on uh, are now seeing a different perspective and have a different view on that, saying that actually, no, it's coming from both sides. Both sides are equally as uh, aggressive to each other even though there was one that initiated it but behind the scenes there were things that were kind of like building up to 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 that invasion so yeah. i mean yeah I, I think with this topic we pray that there is a peaceful solution yeah um because if not then the you can say outcome if it keeps going the way it's going and both parties aren't inclined towards some sort of peaceful solution, then there's no... It won't be good for anyone. It won't be good for anyone, absolutely. Yeah. And there's no winners, yeah. as ultimately. There's no one that can yeah. say that they've won. Yeah. So uh, uh, Just quickly on that, uh, I think we mentioned, I don't know if it was on air or if it was on the break, in the, during the break, but how the neighbouring countries need to be helping de-escalate and to bring about peace, not to be ar- uh, uh, not to be arming uh, either side, P- uh, Russia or Ukraine. And how Zelensky's been going around Europe um, asking for help, I think, is not the right way to go about it. He should be saying, find a way to bring peace because we don't want to see more deaths. We don't want to mm. see more destruction. We don't want to see homes, hospitals, schools destroyed. We want to see people thrive. Do you think if that same effort... Asking for arms, continue. If I mean, I know they tried a diplomatic solution at the start, but do you think if they continue that diplomatic su- solution and the same zeal, they are now, you know, asking for arms and and for intervention, 
uh, what military intervention do you think we would have been in a different position by now I, th- I believe they would have I don't think those sort of efforts would go to waste. I think people would see that, okay, they're trying to de-escalate it. And if Europe, especially the superpowers of Europe, UK, Germany, all these other countries, Poland, are instead of thinking, okay, we're going to pump hundreds of millions of um, uh, of our money into your uh, military uh, uh, tactics, instead of that, we're thinking, okay, what is what is the peaceful solution here? Let's try and uh, get you guys mm-hmm. on the table and talk about uh, finding some common ground. Then how can that effort go to waste? That effort wouldn't, I don't personally believe that that effort would ever go to waste. I think, I think we will, we'll, I'm, I'm, I'm <coughs> not sure if we'll cover the clip, but as we mentioned, His Holiness has mentioned something around this is, is the fact that, you know, as countries' involvement, it should be more of a diplomatic solution. And countries that do get involved should do so without strings attached, yeah. without 100%. benefit for their own. I think if you help someone, yeah. it's not helping if you're thinking what you can get out yeah. of it. Yeah. And I think if there was genuine, I mean, at the start, like I said, there was a there was cause for a diplomatic solution. But I think er- everyone involved knew that these, this diplomatic solution wasn't on its own, just something mm. that's going to benefit you know the the parties involved it's gonna you know everyone's trying to get their piece of the action or piece yeah. of the pie yeah. um <coughs> so this sad. is something that his holiness um has mentioned quite a bit and I, I know you just mentioned it now but even in the clip that the the peace symposium that i was reviewing which we're going to talk about after the break um his holiness did mention it that um you know for absolute justice you need to want for yourself what you want for the other person so you you need to want for the other person what you want for yourself, sorry. And yeah, it shouldn't come with strings, 100%. I think being altruistic or doing something just for the sake of being good and seeing the bigger picture and wanting peace in the world is is something that will bring about some, um, some peace rather than you just thinking, okay, if I do this, then I'm going to hold on over you, which is completely wrong, completely wrong, I think. Yeah, like, like I said, it's it's one of those things that we, we hope and pray <coughs> it does have a peaceful end. Uh, otherwise, like you guys have also mentioned, that there will be no winners. Yeah. If it keeps escalating in the way that it is, at the end of it, there will be no winners and everyone will have been affected by what can be. So again, we pray that they can find some sort of peace as mentioned we're coming to the end of our first hour we're about to go for our 11 o'clock news break when we come back we will be discussing <coughs> different addresses delivered by his holiness Hazrat Mizam Masur Ahmed the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community uh, at the occasion of the peace symposium as we mentioned at the beginning the peace symposium uh, started is a flagship event that started in 2003 and happened every year and obviously there was a break during COVID but uh, this year which next week is the exact date uh, His Holiness will be addressing the world again um, uh, on the 4th of March he will be addressing the world again uh, in a critical time where you know peace is so uh, needed it's required um, and no one can deny that so in build up to that peace symposium, we're going to be looking back at some peace, different, some different uh, uh, addresses. addresses from different years, uh, but we'll see how His Holiness's points that he made then are so relevant yeah. now. So make sure you join us after the break. We'll be back after the eleven o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording. 
and lines are now closed. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. Um, in the first hour, <coughs> we just covered different news segments. And as mentioned before, we are now moving uh, to our next segment in which we will be discussing different addresses made by, delivered by rather, His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Musulam at the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community uh, on various different peace symposiums. And the reason we're doing this is because next week on the 4th of March, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community will be hosting its annual peace symposium. Uh, it's a flagship event. It's an international attended event uh, for the sole purpose of spreading this message of peace, justice. Um, and it's so relevant and so needed, especially now. But actually, one of the things we wanted to do uh, is because the first peace symposium of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the UK took place in 2003. And it's interesting, like we went through different addresses. So I believe um, W went through the 2013 address, I went through 2017, and uh, Shreve went through the 2019. And it's amazing how every time, I'm sure like when I listened to that address in 2017, which is what, three, six years ago, it's, I felt uh, this is so relevant for today. And I'm sure you guys got that feeling as well. So we're going to um, start talking about your address but before we do like I said this is a live and interactive show it is we want you to have your say if you've attended a peace conference or you have anything you want to mention with regards to what His Holiness says we're going to discuss uh, then you can do by calling us on 0208-687-7878 that's 0208-687-7878 or you can reach out to us on our shows, uh, socials of Voice of Islam which is at Voice of Islam UK so the um, peace symposium that uh, I reviewed was the peace symposium that took place in 2013 uh, here in Mosque. Um, I can't remember the date exactly. Uh, and every peace symposium, actually, I, can't, I don't know about the earlier ones, but I know that the last decade, at least, every peace symposium has had a theme, or it's had a it's had a specific theme about um, uh, about peace, about safety, about security, about prosperity. And uh, in my particular one, the well, the one that I reviewed, um, His Holiness Hazrat Musul Ahmed was um, talking about absolute justice and the need for absolute justice and how the absolute justice would translate in there being uh, worldwide peace. So uh, one of the earlier things that His Holiness had mentioned uh, regarding absolute justice was uh, wanting for your brother what you want for yourself and this doesn't need to exactly be for individuals it can also be for countries and this is something that Shreve you mentioned before um the break about how um uh you know th- when you're when you're assisting or helping another country it shouldn't come with any strings and this is exactly what has his holiness has, has mentioned not just in my uh in, in the peace symposium that i reviewed but in all all of the peace symposiums uh one w- descriptive word i think would be good to use in in terms of the advice that his holiness gives is timeless i, I think um Everything that his owners mentions, I was when I was listening back to, it, I was thinking this is relevant today, yeah. just as just as much as it was back ten years ago. Um, and the first clip I think uh, we can go to is um, so one of the points I want to mention is and now we we know that his owners is the fifth successor of uh, the Ahmadi Muslim community. Uh, may Allah strengthen his hand. We 
see him as a spiritual father we see him as as a leader as a spiritual leader but i think it's easy to forget that his wisdom it, it, it doesn't it's not limited to just the the, the spiritual knowledge Sometimes some things that his holiness mentions, you think okay, he he knows about the rest of the world as well. He he knows um, he knows about worldly matters. He knows about politics. He knows about a lot of stuff, and we forget that. And um, it's exemplified in all of his speeches. And here, when uh, his holiness talks about reasons for um, there not being peace or, or reason for disturbance in the world, I think Hazul um, really elaborately highlights some of the some just some of the factors for disturbance in the world. So let's listen to that now. During the past four or five years, the various uh, disasters and forms of unrest have, that have uh, occurred or are occurring have led directly to an increase in restlessness and disorder. There is no doubt that with each day that passes, the peace of the world is ebbing away. We cannot attribute the world's lack of peace on just one or two factors. In fact, there are multiple reasons which are all contributing the increasing disorder. I shall name just a few. The world's economic crisis, has contributed hugely to global unrest and increased frustrations amongst the masses. Another major cause of division is internal power struggles within countries. And then, in many nations, the rights due to members of the public are being unjustly usurped. Another factor is that some parties seek to demonstrate their power and might by treating others extremely cruelly. Further, a root cause of division is a lack of justice in the world. This is leading directly to a complete lack of mutual confidence and trust. Another cause of unrest is the fact that people or governments look at the wealth and resources of others with a sense of sense of envy and greed. In fact, they do not limit themselves to the envious classes, but actually seek to seize what is not rightly uh, rightfully theirs. As I said, there's a long list of reasons by the world. Uh, why the world is being consumed by hatred and disorder. And I have only mentioned a few. These issues are of grave concern, and we must reflect over how to solve them so we can seek to establish global peace. So, uh, I think... Um, His Holiness has very clearly and uh, evidently highlighted um, some of just some of the factors um, resulting in disturbance in the world and, and and not allowing there to be peace. And as I mentioned before the clip, I, I find it um, I f- not astounding, but I, I find it that, that um, you know 
we should be respecting and be marveling nearly at how deeply Hazul understands some of the issues. Now, when we think about what's going wrong in the world, or even us here three as a discussion, if we were talking about what are the causes for um, disturbance in the world, I'd, I don't think, me personally, I would say, oh, one country is looking at another country and is being envious of their resources and is trying to now take their resources. I would think of other reasons. I would say that one country is maybe just... Um, uh, they, they, they just feel that something is being done wrong by them and, and they just want to cause disturbance. But I, I, some of the factors that Hazor has mentioned are not things that I think are at the forefront of people's minds. Um, you know, where <laughs> some countries, uh, as Hazor mentioned, are not uh, treating their um, their people fairly or, or with... Um, with with justice, uh, how there's there's an economic uh, instability and inequality in the world. So all these factors, I think, um, again, as I mentioned before, the clip are, are timeless, uh, and they're, they're issues that are prevalent right now, uh, and the issues that were also prevalent ten years ago. And uh, if if people don't take heed of this, then I think it could um, it, it, there won't be any 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 positive outcome. Yeah, well, absolutely. So no, I was just agreeing to your point because there's not much you can add on to that because it's, you're right, it's so relevant um, and it's something that it, it's it's so powerful when mm. you hear it uh, and it's so required. Uh, so let's look at the uh, the uh, another clip of that um, His Holiness had mentioned in the same address regarding um, you know what the possible outcomes could be or what uh, 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 what state we're in at the moment and, and, and the threat of, uh, of, uh, of a third world war. The threat of the world war is the biggest threat to today's civilization. It is a real threat and to prevent such an outcome we will have to think in a fair and just way so that we can save the world from ruin. It is noteworthy that the one of the biggest causes of today's lack of peace is the current financial circumstances of the world, which have become extremely strained over the past few years. In a very recent interview, the Prime Minister of Luxembourg said that today's economic climate was the same as was faced by the world prior to the First World War. He added that the desperate financial circumstances at that time were a major cause of the war. Whether others agree with him or not, in my view, his analysis is correct. Indeed, I would go further to say uh, that today's world situation is also very similar to that which prevailed in the years preceding the Second World War. The words of warning given by Luxembourg's Prime Minister are something that we should consider very seriously and pay urgent attention to. The Prime Minister said, anyone who believes that the eternal issue of war and peace in Europe has been permanently laid to rest could be making a monumental error. Um, again, again uh, the, His Holiness, Hazem um, Azim Masur Ahmed, um, 
talking about how the financial instabilities of the world can cause uh, unrest and um, I think it kind of adds on to the point that was earlier mentioned about how there could be envy between one country and another country um, and it, it's not something that we think of straight away but it, it, it's clear to see that if you know if you look at some of the poorer regions uh, in the world you can look at Asia you can look at Africa and we know that in both of these continents there are certain countries that have more wealth than other countries yeah. and then ultimately you will see that um, there there would be some some conflict there because one country is clearly advancing um, at, a, at a faster rate than some of the other uh, some of its neighbouring countries, and then also that can cause some issues internally as well because there's a massive uh, 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 massive inequality and inequity between um, the rich of that country and, and the poor. Yeah. Let's yeah. take an example of uh, Ghana right now, Ghana and and uh, Nigeria. They're both, I I would say, up and coming in terms of real estate is uh, is is very popular there right now. Um, a lot of countries are investing heavily. China is one country that is he- investing heavily, and this is actually something that His Holiness mentioned in 2013 in his same address. We don't have the clip for it, but His Holiness mentioned that um, China are investing heavily in in Africa uh, and in Ghana, and has um, also mentions there that if the African countries were to no no sorry Hazul didn't mention that but Hazul did say that um, Africa would be a continent for for refuge if uh, a world war was to take place. But what I was going to come on to was uh, so to add on to the inequality and the envy from country from neighbouring countries. Hazul also mentions that when uh, there are conflicts, neighbouring countries should be supporting and should be assisting. Now, the next clip that I want to play, I think is very powerful because one of the other attributes of Islam that is highlighted here is to um, listen to good advice regardless of where it's coming from. And what has, what, uh, has Muhammad, um, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, may peace and blessings of God be upon him, had mentioned, uh, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't know the um, saying uh, exactly, but it's something along the lines of don't look at the don't look at who is saying the good advice. If it's good advice, you should take it. Uh, and this is what his holiness, Mr. Masroor Ahmed, uh, mentions in this clip where he talks about the conflict in Syria and how it should be resolved. And the desperate Syrian people are carrying out for help, uh, crying out for help. Then the neighboring countries should unite together in order to stop the cruelty and establish peace. They should not seek to fulfill personal or vested interests, but their goal should only be the peace and prosperity of the local people. The Holy Quran teaches that when cruelty has been successfully stopped and the aggressor pledges and adopts peace, then undue restrictions should not be enforced as a means to express power and might. Although this key principle particularly applies where one country attacks another, it can actually be applied to all situations in order to establish peace. Recently, a wise suggestion was made by the Israeli President Shimon Perez about how to deal with the situation in Syria. He suggested that rather than Western countries intervening to remove the government, the United Nations 
should send a peacekeeping force to Syria consisting of only Arab soldiers. So it does not appear to be a Western invasion or imperialism. He further said that as the Arab League is a local organization that already exists, it should use its influence to try and establish just and fair government in Syria. The Holy Prophet Muhammad said that wherever a person finds words of wisdom or good advice, they should adopt them and should not look to see who has given the wise counsel. Therefore, regardless of the fact that it is the suggestion of the President of, of Israel, the Muslim countries should pay close attention to this proposal. All of this, there is only one hope and one guarantee of peace, and that is for justice to prevail in the same spirit that the Holy Prophet has taught, that you prefer for others what you prefer for yourself. If such justice can develop where, where each country and each great power prefer for others what it prefers for itself, then we can still find peace. It requires all parties to give truthful and fair testimony and rather than uh, veto power for a select few. There should be true democracy and justice across the board. If these steps are taken, then we will find peace between nations and we will find that terrorist organizations will die away and lose all support. So that was um, His Holiness uh, and the address that we just covered was the one delivered in 2013. Like we said, all of the addresses that we are covering, you can find them online, whether it be on YouTube or on the community's website. But if you go on YouTube and just write Peace Symposium, Ahmadiyya, whatever year, you will come across all of the other addresses. The address now we're now moving on to is the year 2017. Uh, I, this is the address that I listened to and the theme of the night was global conflicts and the need for justice. Um, this was the year and in fact the address was delivered maybe a few weeks after the Westminster terror, ter- terrorist att- terror attacks that took place. So it was a sensitive time and obviously Islam was being portrayed in the media in a certain way. So His Holiness uh, addressed that as well. And I think the first clip I want to play is where His Holiness uh, discusses the purpose of the peace symposium and these peace symposiums that take place, but also the purpose of the advent of the promised Messiah. In all parts of the world, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community seeks to promote peace and in accordance with the teaching of Islam, raise its voice against these brutalities. This annual peace symposium is also an important part of this effort. I would like to thank all of our guests for joining us here tonight. The founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community said that he had been sent by God Almighty in this era in servitude to the 
holy prophet of Islam, Muhammad sallallahu in order to spread the two paramount objectives of Islamic teachings. First, to bring mankind closer to God Almighty. And secondly, to draw the attention of humanity towards fulfilling the rights of one another. It is my belief that these two objectives are the bedrock for the establishment of genuine and long-lasting peace in the world. So that was the, <clears throat> His Holiness just mentioning, the purpose of these is peace, peace symposiums, how um, the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, who came to um, revive these beautiful teachings, to remind people what the true teachings of Islam are, how actually through Islam you can find the solution, which is peace. Uh, and again, that's what one of the purpose of this peace, the efforts of this peace symposium is to do so, is to internationally. And like we said, this is not something that just, you know, it's a one-off. For the last 20 years now, His Holiness has been speaking um, on these topics. And one of the things that Mudabar says, it stays with me, that this is almost like timeless advice, that whatever address you listen to, any address you go to listen to, you think, wow, this is so relevant to us right now as well. Uh, and I think in that same address, His Holiness mentions, with regards to certain Muslim, so-called Muslims, who do uh, turn to terrorism or extremism, and he just presents this teaching of the Holy Quran where he mentions a true Muslim, a true definition of a Muslim, you can see uh, in this teaching where the Holy Quran states that the killing of one innocent person uh, is akin to the killing of mankind and the saving saving the life of an innocent person is akin to saving the life of the whole mankind so this is the teaching that we go by and this is how precious uh, God's creation is to Muslims so of course those people who turn to extremism they're misled, they're misguided they are uh, groomed in a certain way they are people of certain circumstances. But like you, we've all mentioned before, sometimes we don't get to see the full story of actually what's happened. And we only see one side of the story. We only see actually what's portrayed um, in front of us. And that then leads on to the next point, which I want to play, uh, in which His Holiness addresses the fact that some people in the media and some people in general, it's their mission to unjustly defame or and discredit the teachings of Islam and portray it in a way that it leaves a negative uh, mindset or it leaves a negative impression on people and in His Holiness uh, discusses that in this clip. On the other side it is also apparent that amongst non-Muslims there are certain individuals or groups who are fanning the flames of division and hostility and have made it their mission to unjustly defame and discredit the teachings of Islam. For example, in a column published just last week in Foreign Policy, the journalist Bethany Allen has written about a well-funded and sophisticated U.S.-based network whose only purpose is to incite Islamophobia and to stop all attempts to promote the peaceful teachings of Islam. The Foreign Policy article states, 
A well-funded network is trying to strip the right to speak away from American Muslims and fanning the politics of fear. America's far-right anti-Muslim ecosystem has adopted the same twisted interpretations of Islam that the Islamic State, ISIS, promotes. The author further writes that peaceful Muslims in the United States are the victims of an increasingly empowered industry of Islamophobia that constricts the space for balanced and open dialogue, sidelining the very Muslims who are doing the most to promote peaceful, orthodox interpretations of Islam. She writes, the United States has powerful protections for speech and religious liberty, but a targeted network now seeks to deny Muslims that freedom and to treat Islam as a dangerous political ideology rather than a religion, and to silence and discredit any Muslims who disagree. The article gives the example <coughs> of a peaceful Muslim convert in the United States. As soon as he gave a university lecture highlighting Islam's true teachings, a powerful lobby turned against him, trying to portray him as an apologist for murder, slavery, and rape. His family were subjected to death and rape threats. The university where he worked was inundated with emails demanding that he was immediately fired. Thus, such cases prove that there is a concerted effort taking place to influence public opinion against Islam and to prevent its true teachings from reaching a wide audience. Based on her research, the author concludes by saying, in the process, they are denying Islam the same functional rights that Christianity enjoy, uh, enjoys and silencing the very people best poised to reconcile Islam with modern American life, which may be the very point. Regrettably, we often hear politicians and leaders making needlessly inflammatory statements that are beholden <clears throat> not to the truth, but to their own political interests. For example, in a speech last year, when running for president, Dr. Ben Carson, who is now a cabinet member in the new U.S. administration, described Islam not as a religion, but as a life organization system. Furthermore, speaking about the founder of Islam, peace be upon him, Dr. Carson said, what I would suggest is that everybody here take a few hours and read up on Islam. Read about Muhammad, peace be on him. Read about how he got his start in Mecca. Read about how he was seen by the people in Mecca, not very favorably. Further, he says, he has, how his uncle was influential and protected him. When his uncle died, he had to flee. He went north to Medina. That's where he put together his armies and they began to massacre anybody who didn't believe 
the same way they did. I agree with Dr. Carson, only to the extent that I too suggest that people take the time to read the true teaching, uh, the true character of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him. If they study impartial texts, they will see for themselves that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was never involved in the massacre of non-Muslims and that such claims are a complete affront to history. The truth is that as a consequence of many years of sustained and bitter persecution, he and his followers were driven out of his hometown of Mecca and forced to migrate to Medina, where they lived peacefully alongside the local Jewish people and other tribes. However, the disbelievers of Mecca did not let the Muslims live in peace and instead aggressively pursued them to Medina and waged war seeking to destroy Islam once and for all. It was at that critical juncture in Islam's history that Allah the Almighty permitted the Muslims to engage in a defensive war. This permission was granted as the verse of the Quran cited earlier attest. In order to establish the universal principle of freedom of belief. Hence, the allegation that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was a belligerent leader or a warmonger is an injustice and cruelty of the very highest order, and such false claims can only grieve the hearts of the millions of peaceful Muslims worldwide. History bears witness to the fact that with every fiber of his being the Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, sought peace and reconciliation. In this respect, you do not have to take my words for it. Rather, listen to what Ruth Cranston, a prominent 20th century author, wrote in, the, in his book, World Faith. Contrasting the defensive wars forced upon the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, with the nuclear weapons used during World War II, she wrote, Muhammad never instigated fighting and bloodshed. Every battle he fought was in rebuttal. He fought defensively in order to survive. She says, and he fought with the weapons and in the fashion of his time. Certainly no Christian, then she further says, certainly no Christian nation of 140 million people who today dispatches 120 helpless civilians with a single bomb can look askance at a leader who at his worst killed a bare five or six hundred. Thankfully, amongst a climate where it has become the norm to brandish Islam as a religion of extremism and violence, there remains some non-Muslim journalists and commentators who write with integrity and justice. For this, I commend them for swimming against the tide of falsehood and injustice that has become so commonplace. So that was His Holiness, um, 
it's so difficult whilst I was listening to, to this address trying to get out clips for the show because every time I was like okay I'll stop it I was like no but this next point is really important as well and, I, and before you know it like this last clip was about 8 minutes but it was so important uh, in the sense that it really is important uh, in the sense like I keep saying that again but in, it's timeless but no I'm, what I'm saying is so relevant uh, especially when you say see how much control the media has on what people's assumption is on things um, and especially when it comes to religion uh, Islam I'll say less now but Islam was there was a time where people feared Islam people didn't understand Islam um, Muslims were looked at in a certain way so how His Holiness mentioned it there <clears throat> that actually it's nothing to say it's something that we should portray in, in a just way and history is there for you to kind of see how the character of the Holy Prophet, the founder of Islam, may peace and blessings of God be upon him, how he changed the world for the better. But it's only if you see it and study it in a wholehearted way with the intention to learn, and then you will come to see the beautiful teachings of this beautiful religion. Now, the last clip I'm going to play is um, it's the end of the address where His Holiness touches upon the actual theme of the event. And like I said, the theme of the night was global conflicts and the need for justice. As you will be aware, the theme of tonight's event is global conflicts and the need for justice. And I have said for many years that the lack of justice has plagued every segment of society and fueled disorder. A lack of justice is also observed in the United Nations to the extent that even those closely affiliated with the United Nations openly attest to its shortcomings and its failure to accomplish its primary objectives, uh, uh, objective of maintaining international peace and security. For example, in an article published by the New York Times, the former United Nations Assistant Secretary General, Anthony Banbury, wrote, I love the United Nations, but it is failing. There is too much bureaucracy and little result. Too many decisions are made for political reasons rather than following the values and objectives of the UN or by effects on the ground. He says, for the UN to continue and prosper, it needs a complete overhaul. And so an outside panel should examine the system and recommend changes. Similarly, during recent years, certain governments have made unjust and unwise foreign policy decisions that have had a very negative effect on the peace and stability of the world. A well-known columnist, Paul Krugman, recently wrote, also in the New York Times, about the 2003 Iraq war. He wrote, the Iraq war was not an innocent mistake, a venture undertaken on the basis of intelligence that turned out to be wrong. He further says the public justification for invasion were nothing but pretexts and falsified pretexts at that. The reason I have given this example is to illustrate that it is wrong to claim that Muslims are the sole cause of increasing conflicts witnessed in the world. Whilst it is undeniable that certain Muslim countries are at 
epicenter of today's war and cruelties. It cannot be said that the rest of the world is united and immune from disorder. For example, there have been numerous reports or statements indicating heightened tension between the United States and China and even the possibility of a war between them. Indeed, it, it was recently widely reported that a close advisor to the President of America had said that there was no doubt that the U.S.-China war would take place in the next five to ten years. Similarly, in January, the South China Morning Post quoted a senior Chinese military official saying that a U.S.-China war was now not just a slogan but was becoming a practical reality. Likewise, tensions between Russia and the West continue to smolder and threaten to escalate at any time. Indeed, as tensions continue to mount, Germany's ex-Foreign Minister Frank Walter Steinmeier took it upon himself to speak out against NATO military exercises near the Russian border. Speaking, just he said, the one thing we should not do is inflame the situation with loud saber rattling and war mongering. He says, anyone who thinks a symbolic tank preyed on the alliance's eastern border will bring security is wrong. We will be well advised not to provide a pretext to renew an old confrontation. I agree with, this, with the statement of the ex-foreign minister that nations should not provoke one another or seek to assert their dominance. Rather, they should engage in diplomacy and try to resolve difference, differences amicably and without needlessly threatening each other. Sadly, with the passing of time, it seems that we are losing our ability to listen and to tolerate opposing views and perspectives. Opening the channels of communication and facilitating dialogue is essential. Otherwise, the world's malaise will only get deeper. Anyway, I have cited various reports that suggest we are moving towards further warfare and bloodshed, both at an international and national level. We are seeing polarization and a hardening of attitude towards one another. Instead of pointing fingers and blaming one another, now is the time for solution. In my opinion, there is one ready-made solution that can have an instant impact and begin the process of healing the world. I refer to the international arms trade, which I believe has to be curbed and restricted. We all know that in order to fuel their economies, Western nations are selling weapons abroad, including to those nations that are embroiled in warfare and armed conflicts. For example, just a few weeks ago, it was widely reported that the new U.S. administration is signing off on a new arms deal for the sale of sophisticated 
and precision guided missile technology to Saudi Arabia. Furthermore, a United Nations report published last year found that when it comes to the sale of arms, normal rules of law do not apply. It found that an array of companies, individuals and countries had long been contravening an international arms embargo on Libya and supplying arms to different factions there. Hence, even where some limited rules apply, they are not being properly enforced. Whilst the primary interest of every nation should be the well-being of mankind and achieving peace, it is a sad truth that business interests and the pursuit of wealth invariably take priority over such concerns. Reflecting this narrow self-interest, a well-known well -known CNN host recently said that curbing the arms trade could result in a loss of jobs amongst American defense companies. During a live interview, he said, there's a lot of jobs at stake. Certainly, if a lot of these defense contractors stop selling warplanes, other sophisticated equipment to Saudi Arabia, there's going to be a significant loss of jobs, of revenue here in the United States. Furthermore, it is sometimes argued that the sale of weapons may actually encourage peace as weapon can act as a deterrent. In my opinion, this view is completely senseless and only encourages the further production and sale of extremely dangerous weapons. Indeed, it is such justification that have caused the world to become embroiled in a never-ending arms race. For the sake of the good of mankind, governments should disregard fears that their economies will suffer if the arms trade is curbed. Instead, they should think about the type world of uh, world they, they wish to bequeath to those that follow them. Many of the weapons being used in Muslim countries and even by terrorist groups such as Daesh have been produced in the West or Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe and so it, it is time for proper sanctions to be put in place which are effectively implemented. If this one step is taken, I sincerely believe it can have a very significant impact in a short frame of time. <clears throat> Otherwise, the, the alternative does not bear thinking about. I do not need to elaborate because the articles I have cited speak for themselves and point in the direction of another large-scale war. No country or group should be under illusion that they are safe because when wars start, they evolve rapidly and often unexpectedly. If we look back to the Second World War, there were nations who were determined not to take part but were eventually dragged into it whilst alliances and blocs continued to shift and change. Today, several countries have acquired nuclear weapons, and if even just one such weapon is ever used, the consequences will be 
unimaginable and will live on live on long after we are gone rather than leaving behind a legacy of prosperity for our coming generations we will be guilty of leaving behind only sorrow and despair our gift to the world will be a generation of disabled children born with defects and intellectual disabilities who knows if their parents will even survive to care and nurture them hence we must always remember that if we seek to pursue our own interest at all costs the rights of others will be usurped and this can only lead to conflict wars and misery so that was the address delivered by his holiness in 2017 and we are now going to move on to shweb who listened to the address that his holiness delivered in 2019 Exactly. Uh, just before you do play the clips, I just want to reinforce what Mo said at the start. I mean, these the messages and the speeches is not just for a specific time, as we've seen that the, the some of the some of the key key points mentioned in in these addresses have have been repeated yeah, because yeah. it shows that these things, you know, despite so the world understanding it, despite us, you know, bringing it to light as much as we can, these issues are still prevalent in society. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, if you want to play the first so, clip, right, yeah. so the first clip, this is. from the address delivered in 2019 what was the theme oh sorry yeah the the theme was the critical need for peace all right so let's listen to the first clip nuclear war gets surprisingly little attention considering there are enough nukes to end human civilization in hours the reason to pay attention is that arms control especially between the us and russia has broken down A fresh nuclear arms race appeared to be taking shape. As for what anyone can do, arms control moves forward in response to public pressure when humanity speaks louder than arms merchants and bellicose world leaders. This was just a very short clip because I just wanted to highlight that it's so relevant this is back i mean in both your addresses there's the mention of nuclear arms um we know that the that the uh, you know his holiness has written to the world leaders about uh, yeah. the danger of <coughs> nuclear arms yeah. and 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 you know look he it was mentioned that uh the US and Russia about this nuclear arms race and and at the start i mentioned the news story about Russia <coughs> uh, wanting to come out of um oh, so halt it um the the treaty um with with the yeah. US um it just shows that you know we understand the issues are there and it's almost like people are oblivious to the fact that oh no we you know we can't we don't think there'll be a nuclear war or we don't think this will happen i mean i think it wasn't longer that we were thinking i was thinking no you know russia's not going to invade ukraine or you know we're not going to leave the european union or you know these things that you just think that, okay you know this this is not going to happen or the far right won't come into power and it's almost like the, the world is so unpredictable at the moment that it's just happening and and i i just keep reiterating that this message that uh, that we that comes out from uh you know this holiness delivers is, is isn't just for us it's for the entire world 
um, and it's just it, you know it's just a shame that these these yeah. messages. Do you know uh, when you were just mentioning there about you don't expect to, these things to happen, but they do? For example, Brexit. I, I, me personally, I never would have thought we were going to leave the European Union. And what this just reminds me of is um, the book written by Hazem Asimov, um, the the uh, yeah sorry the process uh, how to be free from sin. Is that by Hazem Asimov? How to be free from sin? Yeah. So in that book, Hazem Asimov, the Prophet Messiah mentions um, about these thousand years uh, that Satan is uh, shackled up and is in chains. Now we are coming to the end of the thousand years where um, Satan is free. So there's a battle now between good and evil, and it's um, described as basically uh, Satan doesn't want to get rid of his hold that he has on people, and that's why um, there, there's going to be this conflict between good and evil, a long conflict between good and evil before the thousand years where um, we will have uh, a, a, a more more peace and freedom. Yeah, let me move on to the second one. Indeed. It is my belief that the underlying cause of most resentment in society tends to be economic and financial frustration. Certain groups take advantage of such anxiety by laying the blame at the feet of immigrants or at the, at the followers of religion and incite sentiments of hatred towards them. Thus. An impression has developed in Europe that Asians, Africans, and particularly Muslim immigrants are a threat to society. In the United States, there are similar fears regarding Muslims and also Hispanic seeking to enter the country through Mexico. Nonetheless, I firmly believe that if the major powers set aside their own Western interests and strive earnestly towards improving the economic conditions of poorer nations and treat them with sympathy and respect, such issues would never arise. Here in the United Kingdom, there is currently, currently a great deal of uncertainty regarding Brexit and the UK's future relationship with the European Union. I made my, my own views on this topic clear during an address at the European Parliament in 2012. <clears throat> While addressing, I said you should make all possible efforts to preserve this unity by honoring each other's rights, the fears and worries held by members of the general public must be removed. I also said, remember that the strength of Europe lies in its remaining united and together as one. Such unity will not only benefit you here in Europe, but at a global level will be the means for this continent to maintain its strength and influence. In my speech seven years ago, I focused upon the importance of removing the fears of public about immigrants and emphasizing the benefits of unity. However, people's concerns were not adequately addressed. And so increasingly, people across Europe 
have come to question the benefit of the European Union. The, star the starkest example is, of course, Brexit, but in many European countries, such as Italy and Spain, far-right or nationalists, even in Germany, nationalist parties are gaining popularity and winning seats at the political table through which they are striving to further weaken the European Union and pursuing an anti-immigrant agenda. Hence, where I had hoped for greater unity in Europe, the past few years have witnessed increased division and turmoil. Why have such frustration come to, be, uh, come to the fore? They are derived from economic difficulties and a failure of governments to act with justice and to protect the rights of their citizens. My own view remains that international cooperation is a positive and unifying force for good. Thus, at the European Parliament, I also said, from an Islamic perspective, we should strive for the entire world to unite together. In terms of currency, the world should be united. In terms of free business and trade, the world should be united. And in terms of freedom of movement and immigration, cohesive and practical policies should be developed so that the world can become united. Consequently, the Islamic viewpoint is that peace can best be achieved through unity. So that was just uh, the second clip. I just wanted to quickly wrap up on that. I mean, look, there's only us mentioned quite a few key factors. He mentioned Brexit, the econ economic hardship, spoke on immigration, the rise of the right wing. But one theme he kept uh, throughout this was the, the importance of unity. And um, it's not just that he's mentioned this before. His Holiness mentioned that he's mentioned this when he spoke at the European Parliament. And what's sad is, I mean, it's like 2019 onwards, we're just still not seeing these things improving. And yeah. we just hope that, you know, hopefully the world does yeah. uh, learn from learn from His Holiness's words yeah. and, and from their mistakes. So as mentioned, uh, the Peace Conference, the Peace Annual Peace Symposium will be taking place on the 4th of March uh, in the Battle Futu mosque in Morden uh, and it is a flagship event so do stay tuned to make sure you listen to his holiness's address thank you so much for listening to saturday morning live we'll be back next week with another episode